0: Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Every episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice or public platform, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. It is time for my occasional reminder that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are various ways you can really help us out ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice really help push us up the search results so that other people can find us. Even better and more relational and personal would be picking an episode you think a friend would be interested in and sending it to them. You can even do this while you're listening to my voice. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Charles Moore. Charles is a journalist, a columnist, and former editor of The Spectator, The Telegraph, and The Sunday Telegraph. He's also the authorised biographer of Margaret Thatcher. We spoke about his sacred value of orthodoxy, his conversion to Catholicism, and why he thinks a good adversarial argument is one way to the truth. I hope you enjoy listening. Charles, we're going to go straight for the big hairy question, um, which isn't one that often gets asked, but you've had a little bit of time to think about it. What is your instinct for what you hold sacred, or if you have sacred values, deep principles that have guided your life?
1: Well, my answer might be sound a bit strange, but um, uh, as a Christian, I think, therefore, what's sacred is what you're taught is sacred. So, orthodoxy is very important to me. And um, it seems to me that orthodoxy, far from being the loose use of the word orthodoxy is that also, is it is it something that sort of constrains you, but the truth of it is that it liberates you because what is uh going on there is that um you inhabit you uh it and you uh it has dealt with a lot of questions which you couldn't dealt with by yourself, so it actually creates a big space in which you can live rather than locks you in a prison and um and therefore. I don't like the idea of what's personally sacred to me. It's not important what's personal. It's what is sacred. Um and um and that's trying to discover that rather than working out whether I mind more about X rather than Y.
0: Lots of listeners aren't religious and there's are de- various different ways of understanding the word orthodoxy and mm. Eastern Orthodoxy and orthodoxy. I don't orth- mean what, that of course. What, I mean
1: yes. I mean the orthodoxy of Christian belief, which is expressed in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church and, uh, in a way, in other churches too. Mm.
0: Um, It literally means right thinking, I think.
1: Is that right? Yes. I mean, um, or right teaching, maybe. Mm. Um, Yeah,
0: now I'm thinking doxology is more, maybe something about rightness, anyway.
1: Yes. Um, And um, we all praise one another in secular life for being unorthodox. And I understand why, because it, it, it sounds as if you're just bravely you're taking on unthought-out conventions, but I'm very interested in conventions, and I think um, it, when you inhabit conventions, you understand them better. Um, and belief has its own conventions. So, um, if I were to sit and invent a whole load of sacred things, it would be sort of either idiotic or whimsical. They exist regardless of what I feel about them. When people say in interviews nowadays or books, or you know, this is deeply personal to me, as if that meant right. Well we've really got to respect that and agree with you. That might not be right. You might be deeply personally wrong.
0: Yeah. Do you have a sense of why that's your response to what do you hold sacred and have you always, uh, do you think orthodoxy would always have been your answer?
1: Well, I think what I'm trying to do perhaps is reconcile to um, conflicting intellectual and, um, is it right to say, moral pressures. One is the idea that, it's very important to be free, which I believe. And the other is that we, an individual is sort of defenceless against much larger forces, um, both in terms of politics and economics, but also in terms of ideas and uh, belief, um, and sort of cosmically defenceless in a way, um, were it not for um, the existence of God. So um, those things, it, it, I've always loved being free, but I've also sensed that um this is not my own sort of brilliant skill that I'm free. it's some sort of gift that we have hmm. uh which we don't create. we can squander it or um improve it, but it's a gift
0: thinking of um the part in scripture where it you know, I'm paraphrasing the sense in which we are we will be slaves to something, but if we are slaves to God in that is true freedom. So it's that, that there is a paradox yes. that you're um, drawing um, there's on. There's a
1: phrase about whose service is perfect freedom. Yeah, referring to God. Yeah, God's service. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's so interesting. I think one of yeah one of the things that when we think about the the narrative about religion in public life, it is the opposite of freedom for many people to serve God to kind of lay down your yeah um, individual agency in the service of another, and you've really pulled out the fact that for many of us our lived experience is not that.
1: Yes. Well, I hope that's. Right, I think people muddle up free, muddle up freedom and ego, and they think they're um, part of the same thing, and that they're both good things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, another thing people love saying in modern moral discourse is that it's very important to be yourself. It seems to me it rather depends what yourself is like before you would wish to be yourself. And um, and yourself, uh, in my personal experience, is not so great. So. Why would you want to be yourself? Where I think I respect the phrase "You must be yourself" is that it's a call to honesty, so you 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 must understand yourself, but being yourself is rather another matter. you might want to change yourself
0: yeah um let's zoom back to uh your childhood. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. let me just kind of paint a picture of it really your home life, the rhythms of your um, world as a child, and particularly if there were any political or philosophical or religious ideas that were really formative for yeah. you from that time? I'd love to hear about them. Uh,
1: well, I was brought up in the country on a farm, um, and uh, my parents were very highly educated but very short of cash, and um, all my family were very highly ed- educated and short of cash. Um, and uh, we were all um, highly educated by them partly in the state system and partly at private schools. And because of the shortage of cash, that was always a problem. And luckily some of us, including me, were scholars, so we got very uh, cheap rates. Um, and they were the family atmosphere, which is dominantly my father's family because he has, um, uh, what he's one of four, whereas my mother's an only child, and we lived in his family's house, uh, was Anglican. Though, in fact, my father, intensely Anglican person, but actually an agnostic, but all his siblings were practicing anglicans and as um a strong sort of fairly high anglican i mean not bells and smells but um certainly not low church anglicanism um which was the dominant culture um and uh that's what i was then
0: and what when did you become aware that your dad was agnostic
1: oh i think quite early on because my father was very good at t- talking to us all about grown up things when we were Little. And he was, my parents, also very interested in politics and liberals with a big L. Quite, not exactly right-wing liberals, but sort of quite conservative liberals in a way, but definitely liberals, definitely anti the Tories um and anti-Labour. Probably emotionally more anti the Tories than anti-Labour.
0: How interesting. So
1: the word wicked used to go with the word Tory a lot in uh, particularly my mother's speech. So of course I found that quite attractive. I like yeah, I thought Tories sound better because they're wicked than <laughs> um, Labour, which just seems a bit boring.
0: So unpack that for me because I think if you're only really familiar with our current political p- climate, the idea that you could be liberal with a big L and anti-Tory and the late and anti-Labour, uh, you know, the Liberal Democrats haven't always been the only third party. There's been other movements. Were they affiliated and, and kind of what? how was that liberalism expressed what were the beliefs that defined it
1: well, my parents were both active my father was often an unsuccessful parliamentary candidate and my father was a and my mother was a, a local councillor um so that was going on all the time there's a lot of talk about that and a general interest in public affairs and through my father a great interest in world affairs um so that was also a very big feature of the sense of the whole world rather than just england was um was very important and because we lived on a farm not in a remote place but you know out of town um we were simultaneously well informed and cut off so we we you know had posh newspapers and listened religiously to um radio 4 and talked a lot about things that were going on in the world but we also were not in the swing of you know whatever the latest fashions and arguments were hmm. um so there's quite an interesting Mixture in that respect, and also we would very much defy the tradition of middle classing that that you don't talk about um, a religion or politics socially, because uh, we did all the time. And um, this used to get me into trouble as a boy because I did. I was quite precociously interested in that sort of thing, and so I often going to neighbours. I would often say the wrong thing. I, I realized after a bit, you know, because I'd start talking about um, oh In the era, it would have been Harold Wilson or sanctions on Rhodesia or um, all those sort of '60s things. Um, um, Soviet Union invasion of Czechoslovakia, and I sort of gradually realised you weren't supposed to talk about that. Though that didn't really discourage me.
0: So I'm going to also break that rule and ask, what was your earliest experience, not just of religious practice in going to church, but of God, of a sense of the divine, of an encounter with the transcendent?
1: Um, well, I always did like a lot of my religious experience is through liturgy rather than just sort of sitting still. Um, so it's a very important to me to go to church. I realise for a lot of people it actually positively puts them off. but um, And obviously it can be very off putting. But um, I always liked, which we had an old fashioned village primary school. So we entirely had the authorised version in the Book of Common Prayer um, for everything. Uh, and I completely liked that always, uh, and I liked the hymns, so the vocabulary and um terms of phrase um and words like raiment and damsel and things uh, were um <laughs> entirely, damsel yes, entirely familiar to me um can't remember actually what the word damsel is in the Bible couple of think it, but anyway, <laughs> you see what i mean yeah um and um uh, um uh, that was the my parents were quite liberal theologically, but very conservative liturgically. Mm. and um, both of those things attracted me, particularly the liturgy and the other thing I suppose it influenced me was always a strong historical sense. I always loved um old buildings and old churches and that sort of thing, and also landscape, which is not strictly speaking a religious issue but can sort of inform religious feelings so i I think was strongly influenced. In a sort of sub Wordsworthian way, by um, clouds or hills or rivers or that sort of thing.
0: So everything that you're saying, particularly that your dad was a agnostic Anglican, and the the kind of the the beauty and the form and the aesthetics almost of the church experience, I think there's lot there's lots of people who might, you know, Richard Dawkins, for example, might say that there's not so much between you and him because he feels all those things, he just doesn't put God at the centre of it. What why would you describe those as kind of re- religious experiences and as
1: well um they wouldn't have to be of course um though liturgy is explicitly religious um and i often think richard dawkins is very like an anglican bishop in his general demeanor and in some of his um pride <laughs> um but um uh, uh i um i felt that um Well, I don't really believe in this thing which separates um, aesthetics from truth. Um, And I think uh, the point about Christianity is that it's true. I would be hard-pressed to say exactly how, um, but that's what it's about. Um, And language, music, and so on is an expression of truth.
0: Mm. And have you had times in your life where you've had crises of faith, where you've not believed in God or not felt at home in the church?
1: I've never really not believed in God, but I remember I had a few weeks at, when I was about 14 when I thought I didn't, but you're not; it's not very significant. Um, I've often thought that it didn't mean much to me, um, and sometimes that certain aspects of it are sort of inconceivable. So, for instance, while I believe in the orthodox way in the afterlife, it means very little to me. I, I just really don't know what they're talking about, and i rather think... They don't <laughs> yeah. um, uh but um uh and 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 I'm not particularly spiritual, which is one another reason why it's important to go to church because it's a way of concentrating um i'm not i'm- not of course anti mysticism, but I'm not mystical um and um but I do think better or pray better if the right words exist mm. and the right surroundings, they're um conducive. And I suppose um when Jesus says I'm the way, the truth and the life, um, I would most readily um respond to the idea that it's the truth and find it harder to um conform to the way or live the life. But I think it's very important, of course, that he says all three. And when someone like Richard Dawkins actually attacks Christianity, he seems to me have no conception of um that point so he's really attacking the truth and he's just saying it's untrue and he hasn't reflected on the, the way and the life
0: hmm. Um you're quite well- by the way
1: i should perhaps add um the other thing which definitely always affected me um in thinking about these things was the story and example of jesus uh, seems a very obvious point for a christian but some don't think so much about that. Um, And um, some, particularly Catholics, particularly devoted to the Virgin Mary and find that the way to Jesus, I hope I'm devoted to the Virgin Mary, but that's not primarily how I think about. um, So I think about what Jesus did and said and sort of almost what he looked like, though obviously we don't know.
0: What is it that draws you to him?
1: Um, I like the way, um, well, first of all, I think, The idea of the incarnation is the most extraordinary idea in religion and unique to Christianity. Uh, And um, so I love the fact that God has a human face. Um, And that makes it to me, I realize it's ineffable and um, weird, really. I can see why Muslims in particular find it shocking. Um, But um, to me, it bridges this, Huge difficulty between um truth and love uh, which um you know that one might b- exist at the expense of the other and um uh so Christ- uh, Jesus embodies that literally embodies it hmm. um and um continues to embody it because he rose again so um and then, if you think more of the character of Jesus as opposed to his theological status, um I like the way he's witty actually. Um and argumentative um and learned but not pedantic um uh and quite manly but not um cruel or violent um so uh, all those things are um striking, so you can uh and sometimes the way he hits back in arguments very remarkable mm. but then there are things when he just um is so obviously um, gentle, such as when, well, actually, a a classic one where he's both gentle and arguing is when um, they all try to stone the woman taken in adultery. And he says, let him, that is without sin, cast the first stone because he's making a really, he's taking on a sort of argument about the law and he's being loving to the woman. Mm. It's very amazing, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Um, you're quite well known for having converted to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. What triggered it?
1: Well, um, i was brought up anti-Catholic. I mean, not violently anti-Catholic, but in the sort of traditional Anglican anti-Catholic idea that priests are sort of all these black-clothed people who are cons- conspiratorial and rather um, anti-British, maybe. Hmm. Um, sort was, of.
0: I get the impression it was just a kind of anti-Catholicism. anti-Catholicism was much more in the air than...
1: Yes, I've sort of some idea about how it's a foreign thing which is preventing us being free hmm. and prevents other pe- people being free, um, and certain sort of old myths which are sometimes slightly true but not very about, you know, like saying the Vir- Catholics worship the Virgin Mary and a piece of bread, those sort of um, types of things. Um but I was always interested, which I realised many good Christians are not, in the idea of what the church was and by what authority it spoke and how it could ensure the um, preservation of and dissemination of the truth. And I came to think, I got more interested in people like Newman, of course, which was at university and maybe even before university. And, um, and then I came to think that attractive and kindly, though the Church of England often was, it clearly was not the divine society um, that Jesus intended. It was a, a set of political and social arrangements arising from a particular history, mm. um, which is most interesting and in many ways valuable, but not the right, really quite the right place to be. And so I thought about that very slowly, and I didn't become a Roman Catholic until, I think, 1994, so I was in my late 30s. Mm. But it was sort of always on the cards from the age of about 20.
0: And your wife is not a Catholic, I think. No,
1: she thought about it, but decided not to. She's much more scholarly than I, and she knows um, she's particularly devoted to seventeenth-century divines and poets like Milton and George Herbert. And uh, well, sorry, Milton wasn't a divine, but uh, and um, uh, I th- and also more less sort of um, argumentative than me. So she would rather continue to inhabit the place she loves rather than leave. Because one thing people sometimes say, oh, you became a Catholic, it's like coming home, isn't it? I say, no, no, no not at all, it's like leaving home. Um, and and by the way, I don't think it's an arrival anywhere. I think it's more, at least in my mind, um, like going on a journey which continues, but you feel you're going in the right direction or you have the right map. Hmm. Sat Nav.
0: Yes. And one of the themes we play around on the podcast is how we engage across difference. Does it does it throw up any conflict or disagreement in the house or do you just um, muddle along?
1: Uh, it's fine now it's slightly difficult to start with. But now I think um, she's a church warden in her church. I serve at mine. Um, we didn't ever have an argument about the children because they already existed and already were Anglicans. That's the way they stayed. And I didn't want to make an issue about that. Um, and... Um, even when I was a little boy, I realized how odd some of the differences between the churches were. Because I discovered, well, I noticed when we said the creed that we believed in the Holy Catholic Church, but all the time we were criticizing the Catholic Church in conversations. So I would try to work out what these two things, um, and actually, and and liturgically, sort of key differences are what two percent of the whole. Um, you know, um, so what? In this way, I'm very ecumenical, though I'm very conservative. I'm very ecumenical because I think. If you start to think, if you systematically think, what do we share rather than what do we disagree on, you get a very long way. You don't get the whole way all the time, but you get a very long way.
0: It's interesting to me because several times you've described yourself as argumentative. And mm. certainly that's a characteristic that columnists, I think, have to <laughs> yes. uh, form in Can't themselves. Can't really not speak, can you? Yeah. Uh. Um, was it an obvious you went to… Uh, Forgive me, Cambridge, Oxford, Cambridge, and um, yeah. did English uh, history, English than history. Um, did you go straight into journalism? Was it an obvious thing, and what was the attraction? Um, I
1: didn't attend uh, I didn't particularly intend to do journalism. Though I was always interested in writing, and to some extent in journalism. But specifically, I went into journalism because of Mrs. Thatcher. Because I applied, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I applied to the civil serp, do the civil service exams in May, 7, in 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 the summer of seventy nine, and. I got through to the final round and then Mrs. Actually became prime minister for the first time and froze recruitment to the civil service. So I couldn't, um, <laughs> I couldn't go further. Far she shaped your life in more so than she one did, way. She did. Yeah. And So I was unemployed for a bit. And then I sort of cast around and through contacts, I managed to get a job on the Telegraph. So um, by that October and that, and I immediately enjoyed it. Um, and I immediately realized that this is actually what I did want to do.
0: Is it a kind of practical thing that you just enjoy, or do you have any sense of vocation as a journalist?
1: Um, Well, I I suppose it is a sort of vocation. I I mean, one doesn't want to put journalism too high. It is a sort of trade rather than a profession. Nothing wrong with a trade, but, you know. Um, So one shouldn't take it too seriously in that sense. But um, I've always liked to trade in words, and I like communicating, and I can't think without writing. Some people go around... um, just thinking. But it's not really real to me. I don't even know what my thoughts are until I start writing them down, or speaking them, but particularly writing them down. And um, so it's constantly fulfilling and renewing, though I think if I'd only done journalism more my life, I would suffer from that thing that journalists feel that, you know, everybody throws away their work and doesn't remember a thing about it. And so writing Mrs. Thatcher's biography was wonderful and very different. I mean, much more markedly different than what might suppose to write a big book is really almost the opposite of journalism rather than just an extension of it.
0: i mm. will talk a little bit more about that biography but I want to just kind of plough this furrow about the role of journalism because mm. we are in a moment when public debates feel unpleasant and I think that you know we're our kind of British common life has always been a bit adversarial you know it's in our yeah. it's in our parliament our media has always been yeah. known as it but uh, and I've often gone away and just worked, tr- looked for the research to quantify this. And it's kind of, it looks like there's a reasonably good uh, reason to think so, but it's also recent that there's not much um, quantifiable evidence. But let's work on the assumption that our public conversations are more fractious and divisive. And one of the theories people put forward for what that, why that is is the information environment kind of amplifying more extreme voices um, because of the way we react to emotion, really, and the way that yeah. clickbait works. And so I, I used to work at the BBC. I used to run a kind of chaplaincy for Christians in media. I have a very, very big soft spot for journalists. So This isn't from a kind of anti, yeah. anti-media perspective, but I, I do feel like it's ethically and morally even more of an important and difficult job because, say you as a Telegraph columnist, what you think, lots of people will sort of outsource what they think. To you mm-hmm. because i haven't got time to learn about everything mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. charles moore th- thinks this i trust charles moore mm-hmm. therefore i think this mm-hmm. i guess throughout your whole career have you felt the weight of that do you pray about it how do you conceive of it and now in this era where every media outlet is under huge pressure to drive readership and clicks yeah. have you felt that actually if i was just a bit more controversial here if i was a bit stronger here if i Stuck a stick in the hornet's nest here that would be a more effective column
1: uh, well it is there are those temptations obviously exist because you will get a little bit more notice suppose you suppose you say um take a sort of small thing, suppose you say this white paper is no good, that's much less powerful than saying naming the minister who produced the white paper and saying he or she is no good because mm. people like in some nasty way an insult to a person yeah um and often. It's quite wrong to insult the person because it is just the white paper, which is the work of many hands. Yeah. Um, and
0: they're trying their best in a difficult job. Yeah.
1: yeah. And similarly, um, so obviously there's a newspaper is always a rush to judgment because it's always a rush. Um, and that you have to think about and you can be guilty of um, bad behavior in that respect. But I would say something on the other side of the argument, which is that it I'm always a bit frightened of the phrase responsible journalism, because I do think um, journalism has a a responsibility to be irresponsible, uh, if you see what I mean, because what I mean is it's not our job to mend everything. It's our job to point out all sorts of things which are difficult, and um, that can lead to mere destructiveness. But it is an important aspect of a free society that you can see, you know, some, let's say, somebody's built this marvellous new railway, but actually it doesn't work. And somebody has to be the person who points out that it doesn't work and that you know the, the line's broken. Um, and that can be true of things which are less tangible. Um, and so the journalism will be tending to look like the dentist, be looking for the hole. Um, but that doesn't mean he's uh, um, necessarily untruthful or um, malign. Um, and indeed, if, when you have a society where that doesn't happen... Um, you know, you get the toothache because the hole hasn't been stopped. Mm. Um, and so, um, I, I personally think that a, quite a high level of fierce argument is not a bad thing, and that can include insults because they have comic effect. And um, and I, be, I, I, you do have to draw the line somewhere, but I wouldn't like to make a generalisation about where. Um, and I try not to be annoyed when people attack me. Um, for that reason though I obviously social media increases this problem and it's worse for people who are not themselves in the media world when they get assailed because they're not used to it. And one re- thing I do about this is I never read it. I mean, I don't, I don't tweet and I never, you're not on Twitter at, at all. I went to check. No. And I never look because it seems to me the downside so much outweighs the benefit mm. for, for me, not necessarily for everybody. It's often a very useful uh, device. Um and, um, uh, when I look at all the comments that get written, which I've, you know, have very rarely done, that's a waste of time too, because what, uh, that get p- posted online on something I've written, because uh, this conversation starts okay, and then it's just a whole load of people insulting one another, mm. um, and... It's just I haven't got the time to.
0: Mm, and that's it. interesting to me because, you know, like most columnists, every so often you, 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 know, you write lots of columns that people just nod and they pass by. And then every so often, like most columnists, you'll say something and people will get very angry yeah. about it and start sharing it everywhere. The fact that you're not on Twitter must... Lots of the columnists I've spoken to, I've asked, how do they deal with that? Yeah. You know, a, a sense of very robust, sometimes justified, sometimes not justified yeah. critique. I imagine not being on social media helps a lot, but every so often that wave must... Splash you in the face how do, have you changed your mind on anything have you regretted anything have you how does it affect you emotionally
1: um, oh well yes obviously changed mind and uh, regret um, but the reason I don't uh, do all those social media things is partly just generational but also because I'm overwhelmed by the amount of messages flying around anyway you know, so I write three columns a week and I do the book write the book and that seems to mean that I go on radio a lot and um that there's a lot of comment anyway and the idea of having to enter into an, yet another dimension where you do more and more and more without getting any more money for it. I mean this is one of the odd things about the internet, you know, Dr. Johnson said none but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. Um and um, yet the whole load of blockheads who are writing not for money all the whole time on this were, well, you know, I'd rather be paid. Um <laughs> and that is actually a bit of a restraint in a way. Yeah. Because if you if you are paid, well you have to produce Something that will satisfy the standards required by the payment. And that's obviously not true of social media, mm. which is one reason it's so strange. You can't just respond. No. Um, I mean, I'm not all against it. You know, it's an extraordinarily liberating um, effect that free communication for almost everybody has. But there are particular temptations, and I avoid them simply by not engaging with that. Yeah.
0: So one of the things I think about a lot is as we engage with each other in public, what are the ways that are actually really productive and persuasive and lead to kind of fruitful conversations and what are the ways that just kind of dig us deeper into our um, original position? Yeah, And I do think that you're exactly right that often columnists are doing that provocative, rallying the troops yeah. mode of of challenge which is needed in a free society but do you ever feel do you ever feel like you'd also like to be in a more of a reconciling mo- mode or more of a listening mode or and and drawing on that theologically or is that just not your calling
1: yes no i i do but i think um secular journalism is on the whole not very like that though i would say that argument is a way of thinking about things people sometimes think it's just shouting at one another indeed sometimes it is just shouting at one another but one of the things that interests me is that only by hearing an argument, whether it's one I agree with or disagree with, do I think. Um, and so the whole idea of dialogue, which comes from the Greek ancient Greek world, is very attractive to me. And the purposes of those dialogue is not to reach agreement, um, but to air difference, which may make people behave more in a more civilized way to one another. But it doesn't mean you're all trying to come to the same view. So journalistically, I'm not interested in consensus. I think it's consensus is the enemy of uh, of free journalism. But I am interested in the opening of the mind by hearing the different views. Mm. Um, But it is definitely our job to drop, uh, chuck a stone into the water, not to uh, smooth the waters. Yes. But we all have different roles at different times and with our own lives. Um, And I think one of the bad things, again, maybe social media has something to do with this, is that I noticed it very much in Brexit as well, that people kept on not recognising what their role was in the situation. So... For example, the role of the speaker, Mr. Speaker, is to be um, uh, impartial. That's the key thing. And he just couldn't care less about it, John Burke Absolutely. He decided, because he had to be in his bonnet about Brexit, and maybe because he's that sort of person, that he was not going to perform his role. And um, I think you see a lot of people doing this, because maybe it's the cult of the ego and the individual, that people, people say, oh, he's so brave, he's so outspoken, etc." But actually, in a particular role, you have to bear in mind what that role is. Um, so obviously, as the person who serves at the altar in my church, I'm not going to go around having arguments with people. That's just a different role yeah um and um uh I think sometimes when famous people tweet, they forget that they um they don't quite see that because they are the prime minister or an archbishop or something, a particular way of talking is required. They can deliberately decide to break the way of talking because they f- think that's important, but they shouldn't sort of break it by accident because they do. and what you get from tweets and things like that is a tone, an overall tone, which is more important than a particular thing you say. And sometimes you can seem too angry. That's the most common fault of tweets, isn't it? Mm. You're um and because you're reacting fast and this can also be true of columnists you you're reacting fast and it's sort of easier to get angry. Yeah. Artificial anger.
0: Yes. Um talk to me about your uh, political journey because you you know you talk about a kind of liberal household and I get the impression that you, you would have described yourself as a liberal,
1: for, liberal uh, uh, yeah,
0: for a bit of your life. Mm. What, what well, how would you describe yourself now and why?
1: A conservative with a small C, not not party. Um, and I much prefer that word to right wing because um, that expresses the the instinct to conserve and to look at everything historically and in terms of tradition and in what is handed down. As opposed to being authoritarian. Um, so in people people in, in issues like um abortion, sexuality, um marriage, blah blah blah. Um people often divide the world into social conservatives and social liberals. But I think actually there are three groups, there's social liberal, social conservative, and social authoritarians. And I'm definitely social conservative, not a social authoritarian. So for example, I'm against um same sex marriage, but um, this doesn't lead me to – I'm very, also very against anything which um, prevents freedoms of these in, in all these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes in the past I've had discussions with the sort of Mary Whitehouse-type people, and I agree very much with their analyses of things like why pornography is bad, but I completely disagree with their conclusion which it all has to be banned. We have to face the fact that um, – people should, if they possibly can be, be free to choose. And also that even if we wouldn't like them to be free to choose about this, they jolly well can because of the way the modern world and communications work. So what we have to do about pornography, which is always a bit of a losing battle, but it's nevertheless true, is explain why it's degrading and horrible um, and maintain that argument, make people see why it matters, rather than, um, you know, putting black, it's on people's screens or whatever the modern yeah. technological equivalent of that is. Yeah. So I mean within like- reason. Obviously there are things you should ban because they incite actual revolting crimes like child or they involve revolting crimes actually like child pornography. Mm. But um general I would be in on the liberal side of the freedom argument and on the conservative side of the what's good argument.
0: So you sound like a social conservative who's also still a political liberal in lots of ways.
1: Uh Yes, the whole idea of banning things is usually a bad way of conducting moral discourse. Mm. You have to do it sometimes, you can't you know you can't be absolute about it, but um or in or, or of enforcing something, sort of like a ban in reverse. So if you take Mrs. Thatcher, Mrs. Thatcher's government, I think, was criticized rightly, I think, for section twenty eight when they um forbade the teaching of homosexuality as a pretended relationship was the phrase mm. um in schools. Um, there were reasons for that which actually weren't anything to do with homosexuality really they were about her dislike of left-wing councils wasting money but um, I think that was a mistake that that happened and now the same mistakes made the other way around so now you're taught that homosexuality is positively good and you have to um, sort of celebrate it and actually you might be almost committing a crime if you don't do that and children must be taught it and hence these rows that are going on now I think those approaches are wrong in the same way because They're moving from an opinion about what's good, which is perfectly entitled to hold, to a law which is oppressive and uh, insulting to people who don't agree with it.
0: So you're nervous about the government kind of holding a perspective on moral issues at all, by the sound of it? Well, I
1: think the government should act morally. And I think it's important that politicians make clear where they stand on these issues. But mostly, it used to be better understood that these are conscience issues, not party issues. Mm. So now you can hardly become a Labour MP, for example, if you are against abortion. That's mm. wrong because it was always understood that it was uh, the individual conscience had to decide on that um, and that you could legitimately disagree or capital punishment. And now I think it's almost impossible to be a Labour MP mm. and without being fully in favour of abortion.
0: Well, I guess we'll see with um, Rebecca long yes. But Or but- you had it
1: with Tim um, Farron when he was the Liberal leader. and he. Um, sort of got out tried to wriggle round his evangelical Christian attitude to um homosexuality mm. when in the election campaign, and then he resigned as leader and said that he shouldn't have done that mm. and in a in a freer society, actually, what the right thing would have been to say is, yes, I am against personally um gay marriage or whatever it is for religious reasons, but that is my view, not The Liberal Party's view, and there's a clear distinction between these two things. And I'm not going to use my position as Liberal leader to impose Mm. a policy, but we've sort of lost that. Yeah. Because everybody, because of the culture wars, which are quite destructive and have come from America largely, um, we now all think that everybody's got to have the same view if they're in the same group.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like uh, your distinction is really helping me because it feels like people's reaction to social conservatism. Is often because they assume it's social authoritarianism, as you You're said. Right. So that- people
1: think they say, "How dare you um, try to stop me living the way I want to live?" And I say, "I'm not trying to stop you. I'm expressing. I really don't want. I truly don't want to stop you. Yeah. Um. I. But I'm expressing a view.
0: Yeah. It seems like abortion is where that there's a real crunch point. There isn't there that yeah. that even those who are socially conservative and political liberal feel. Very conflicted about it, which is a guess why it's such a painful thing to talk about in public.
1: It is very hard because, um, in a way, the position which I hold is not logical, which is that it should be a conscience issue, and therefore, if most MPs vote to allow abortion, um, this must be accepted. Um, and in a way, perhaps I shouldn't say that because because the unborn child is p- powerless, and therefore, um, perhaps you should say, well, you know, I, I just can't accept that. As a way of deciding the subject, but I think actually you do have to, because I'd, any other way is will create even further oppressions and and won't win any argument. Um, but it is quite it's a, it is a particular case that one.
0: Mm. Um, Charles, I ask everyone what they've learnt about engaging across difference, and some people's callings forms them more into that than others, and columnists mm-hmm. certainly aren't. So that's not what you're paid and encouraged to do mainly but in the rest of your life you know you've talked about yourself being ecumenical and you really avoid theological debates in your church and elsewhere so um from those experiences what do you think really helps us when we encounter someone we deeply disagree with or we feel that we're in a very different tribe with yeah what helps us not just well i think you you do
1: encounter i think you may be mistaken a bit about journalism you do encounter difference in in journalism because you're always arguing with a whole load of other people so and on the whole, in professional relationships, the fact that they're left-wing and I'm not, that, uh, doesn't make you hate them, may make you like them, more. you often dislike your own side more than that's only true in politics. Um, and the church sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes. But also, again, it comes to modes and roles. So it seems to me that the point, one of the reasons I like British politics is I think the adversarial character of the House of Commons, I'm, I'm dead against circular chambers because I don't like them trying, I think it's a conspiracy against the public, to try and get agreement all the time. Um, uh, the, the public deserves the, the clash of views in order to get um, something emerging from it. It helps to clarify. And so that's all fine to me. And I don't, of course, some of it is yaboo stuff, but I don't mind a noisy House of Commons and all of that. Equally, I think that's entirely inappropriate for, um, say, a church um, discussion. Um, and there, um, I think it's odious when you have people who are really pushing the point in a sort of polemical way uh, in either side. Um, which does happen a lot and indeed unfortunately church disputes are even more bitter than um political ones because um feelings are heavily engaged and and then there's also the sort of element of triviality. So you're know, the famous I love the line by Henry Kissinger when he says, um, Why are academic rows so bitter? So you you can't think and he says, Because the stakes are so low. <laughs> 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 no, like, <laughs> yeah,
0: Charles Moore. Thank you so much for talking to me on the Sacred. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Milo Edwards, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at Sacred_Podcast or me at theoselizabeth or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take The Sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.